first question is the easiest of them all, a chance for you to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background and what you're doing now. So my name is Gigi Sohn. Uh, I am a lifelong consumer advocate for fast, affordable, and universally accessible networks of all kinds. When I started off back in the day, I was trying to get broadcasters and cable casters, uh, cable systems to, to use their systems more democratically and uh, to get more differing voices and differing ownership of broadcast stations and cable stations and kind of largely failing at that because I started out uh, in the late 80s, early 90s in a very deregulatory era. Uh, we moved on and several years later to the internet, which really changed everything because we went from command and control media to having the means of communications in everybody's hands. So for the past 20 plus years, I've been working to make sure that everybody has access to robust and affordable internet and particularly broadband internet. Um, and obviously now is a very, very exciting time to be involved in this space, and not only because of the tens of billions of dollars that are flowing, uh, but also because of the, the rise of community broadband and more and more communities saying, I want to own my own infrastructure. I may not build it, I may not run it, but uh, they should be my assets. So that's one of the things I'm doing now. I'm doing a lot of different things, but near and dear to my heart uh, is the ability for communities to decide what broadband networks work best for their residents. Interesting. You know, it struck me with what you just said. You, you talked about the, the fight to provide fast, reliable broadband and Internet across the country. And you would think that wouldn't be a fight. <laughs> you think everybody would be aligned with that. But I guess the controversy really settles upon how we do that. Right. Um, so you're now at the American uh, the American Association for Public Broadband. So what specifically does that organization fight for and uh, how does that align to your own personal mission that you just outlined there? Yeah, so for, so the American Association for Public Broadband or AAPB, which is how I'll refer to it in the future, uh, basically promotes and defends the ability of communities to decide whether to own, their own broadband networks. And there are all different kinds of models within that. You have the utility model, like in, you have in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or Wilson, North Carolina, or Lafayette, Louisiana. We had an already existing uh, municipal electric utility that decides to provide broadband. Similarly, co-ops are the same. You know, you've got about 200 uh, cooperatives in this, in this country who are, com they are community owned uh, or owned by members of the community. Um, entities that originally provide electricity and now are providing broadband. But some other communities, they don't want to build it. They don't want to own it. Uh, they don't want to run it. They just want to own it. They want to own the assets. So there are all these public-private partnerships. Uh, and even among those, there are different models. There are, <clears throat> you know, there are open access uh, systems where somebody builds a middle mile or builds actually the um, infrastructure all the way to the home and and, and, and it's come one, come all. I mean, this, like I said, there's a lot of different models. But the one thing that joins all of my members together is that the community chooses that they want to own the infrastructure. So we promote that model, but we promote the freedom to choose. So it may not be right for every community. I understand that, right? And most of the community broadband systems, uh, public broadband systems in this country tend to be in 
smaller cities and towns, rural America, not in the, in the large cities because they tend to have more choice. But in a lot of places, there is no choice. And there's a choice of one or cho- a choice of two. Uh, and that doesn't really work. So again, it's it's about the freedom to choose uh, to own one's own infrastructure. Very interesting to think about all the different business models and how it can be customized to fit that city and its needs and the existing uh, players who are there. What is the value in a city owning the infrastructure? Why would a city want to own the infrastructure and then not also control the, you know, the, the pricing model, for example, or, so, or all the other elements? What is the value there? Well, they do have an input in the other other elements, right? So if they partner with, so just in, in full disclosure, I'm on the board of a company called Two Cows, and one of its subsidiaries is Ting Internet, which has partnered in a number of communities across the country uh, to build the last mile uh, to the home, and they make money, but you know, there's also some money that goes goes back to the community as well. So it's not like it's not like the community has no control at all, but you know, a lot of communities have recognized, I don't want to be an ISP. Right? I don't want to have that, you know, that that relationship with the customer necessarily. So, um, you know, it, but the reason that a community would want to do it is because, you know, even if it didn't make another penny, is because broadband and particularly fiber broadband attracts companies, you know, it attracts businesses, it attracts young people, uh, it makes life better for their constituents. And that's why, you know, if you get down to the local community level, this is not a partisan issue. Like Republican mayors and Democratic mayors want to have super fast broadband. Home builders want to have that because that helps them sell their homes more often. You know, the difference between community broadband and, and you know, what the private enterprise produces is that communities care about getting people connected making sure they have it and they can afford it uh, and making sure that it benefits the community as opposed to, you know, private companies looking at its return on its investment. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's capitalism. But there are way too many communities in this country that the incumbents either don't want to serve at all or they don't want to serve all of it. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So when I was at the FCC in 2015, we preempted the laws of uh, Tennessee and North Carolina that didn't allow Chattanooga or Wilson to expand beyond their footprint. So they were able to provide broadband in their electric footprint, but not beyond. And we had stories from people who lived a thousand feet from, you know, the end of Chattanooga's footprint who had to cobble together satellite and I'm not low earth orbit satellite, like HughesNet and DSL, and they would pay $400 a month for it. And these are areas that the incumbents just did it make sense for them as an economic matter to serve? So what I find somewhat galling about some of the advocacy against public broadband is that it's not only a matter of, I don't want you to compete with me. It's like, I don't even want you to serve the places I don't want to serve. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and you mentioned Chattanooga, and now it's fascinating to see about all the uh private investment they've attracted as a result, a lot of car companies settling in that city because of that broadband, the the value that they're now building out with their uh, quantum network that runs off that uh, private broadband also. So really interesting stuff. Um, you know, I, I want to touch on the resistance then. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the competitive aspect to it that they just don't want 
more players in the market, I guess. Uh, but how are we seeing that resistance play out and prevent the growth of these municipal networks? Well, it's playing out in a in a very, very opaque way. So I'll just give you an example, you know, ripped from this, uh, this summer's headlines. City of Bountiful City, Utah. It's about 15 miles north of Salt Lake City. I happened to pass it by when I was giving a speech in Salt Lake City this summer. Um, they had a grassroots movement. So the residents of the community said, you know, we're not getting sufficient speed. It's not a sufficiently robust network. Said to the city council, we want something different and new. And the city council went to the two incumbents, which were Comcast and CenturyLink, and said, okay, this is the network we want. <laughs> and uh, they, the incumbent said, that's nice. We're fine with what we have right now. So uh, by, by a five to zero vote, city council of Bountiful City contracted with Utopia Fiber to build a community network. So a network, again, that, that, that the city would own the assets, but Utopia would build it and they would run it. So... Shovels were supposed to go in the ground in July. And then in June, an organization called the Utah Taxpayers Association uh, contracted with a, um, a group that collects signatures for ballot initiatives and they get paid per signature to put the matter of whether this network should get billed on the ballot in November. All right. So again, we're shovels supposed to be in the ground in July and people look, I've signed ballot initiative petitions, not fully knowing what was going on. So, you know, um, the signature collecting organization uh, knocked on doors, said we're for the fiber project. We work for the government, both of which were lies. Sign this petition so we can vote on it in November. And they got enough signatures to put it on the ballot. But the city, the city council was infuriated. Utopia was infuriated. AAPB was infuriated. I had a, um, a, a big op-ed in the, in the Salt Lake Tribune about it uh, because nobody knew who this Utah Taxpayer Association was, right? They didn't list their staff. They didn't list their board. They didn't list their donors. Uh, and they were told falsely that this was, you know, putting it on the ballot was helpful when indeed it would have delayed the project at least eight months and cost the city a million or more dollars. So what was interesting was the city and Utopia worked very hard to educate the public, the public, uh, the members of the public, the residents of Bountiful City. They were pretty angry themselves and enough people took their name off the petition that the petition failed. So once you reveal who's behind right? These initiatives and the, the cable companies don't do it in their own name because if they did do it in their own name, you know, that wouldn't be beneficial to them. So they hide behind these surrogate organizations who they pay uh, and, uh, and try to get them to do the dirty work. But that really, that upsets local residents, particularly when they were the ones that were the motivation behind getting this network built in the first place. Hmm. And and to talk uh, further about the, I, I guess, the early stages of approving this sort of network. So the city council decides it wants to do it and it's working with Utopia Fiber. So when does the public come into play and help approve that? Or is it just because the council members are electing, they know what they stand for and and therefore they know they have public support. Well, it's not as it's not as simple as that, right? I mean, there's a lot of due diligence that if you do it right, right? And if you want this to actually happen, 
you know, you have to, you have to do a feasibility plan. You have to, again, the Bountiful City City Council spoke to the incumbents first and said, do you want to do this? They put out a request for proposals, you know, you weigh different proposals. So it's not like, you know, the city council and the mayor just went to Utopia and said, let's do this, right? I mean, there's a lot of seeding of the ground. When I say seeding, S-E-E-D-I-N-G, of the ground that needs to happen first. And you also have to make sure that you really have the support of the entire community, right? It's not going to just be a few noisy voices in the community. You got to have the support of the the local, the, the library and the universities and the chamber of commerce. So, I mean, Bountiful City really did, the city council really did the work they were supposed to do so they could make the case like we've got community support. We asked the incumbents and they said, no th- thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, and Utopia was our best offer, right? So, you know, again, it, it, it doesn't happen like that. It took several years to do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's important to talk about how it had public support from the get-go, and then you're basically redoing the process again when you have to go fight against these associations. Um, so I know there are different business models here, but how do you foresee it all working together with public and private? Are there success stories you can reference? There's tons of success stories of, of, of all different kinds, right? Of the, you know, we, we talked about three of the municipal kinds, there's Loveland Pulse, which is, you know, I think was named the number one ISP in the country because of affordability and robustness. There's Fairlawn, Ohio, which again, just built it from scratch, right? It doesn't always happen. You've got Holly Springs, North Carolina. That's a public-private partnership with um, uh, with Ting. So is Colorado Springs. Uh, Yellowstone Fiber, which just launched a couple months ago. That's also Utopia Fiber, sort of, uh, you know, um, helping to build. Utopia is a private company, right? It's not a government company. Uh, You've got 20 or so cities that have partnered uh, in uh, in Utah with Utopia. So all over the country, interestingly, again, tend to be more in um, some of the the more Republican-controlled states uh, than something like, if you look in the Northeast, except for like, so Vermont has these communications union districts where a bunch of towns join together to provide service. Uh, some of them have not built yet. Uh, some of them have built already. So there's the success stories all over the country, but they do tend to be in the West, uh, in the South, uh, and um, more in the, I guess I hate, I hate using the red and blue terms, but more actually in, in red states than in blue states. Oh, so more municipal networks are in red states than, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, again, there's also co-ops, right? I don't want to forget about co-ops because, again, they, they definitely meet the definition of public broadband. So, you know, co-ops are member-owned, members of the community that, you know, get together and pay due and, and you know, the paying customers, that's what makes it run. Uh, and that's absolutely public broadband. You see those all over the country, but like there's a lot in Missouri, again, a lot in Louisiana, uh, and again, they started off, so they're more kind of like the municipal model to the extent that they started off as, as, as an electric utility and now have sort of moved into broadband. And it's about, I said, it's about 200 of them in the country, but there are many, many, many more electric co-ops. So I'd like to see that model also expand. Interesting. Right. The, uh, as seen in Chattanooga, I believe. I've read that some of the criticism or the ways people kind of... Uh, 
lower expectations with these municipal networks is they say, oh, well, they're, they're mostly in small cities. You know, like, can it really take off in a big city? Uh, and, and a lot, and I guess they've referenced some that have gone bankrupt after buying, uh, buying the networks from the private market. Does that hold any justification in your mind? Let me address one at a time. So what if they're just in small cities and rural areas? Those are the places where the incumbents don't want to compete with each other, right? So might it come to a big city? Maybe. But my whole point is the city should have a choice, right? They should be able to determine, do their own feasibility study, and determine that this is either right for us or wrong for us. So anybody who says that I'm advocating for every single city and every single in the country to have community broadband. And that's the only way to go as obviously misrepresenting what this organization is about and what I've been advocating for a very long time at this point. The point again, to beat a dead horse is freedom of choice. There should be no legal or economic or procedural barriers in the way of making that choice about whether it's good for you. And yeah, it's the little cities and the, the ex-herbs and the rural areas that are not getting served by the incumbents. So, yes, naturally, or they're not getting served in a way that, you know, satisfies their residents. So, yeah, that's why they're moving this way. Uh, and they should be able to move this way. So I don't, you know, if community broadband is only something that's that are in cities like Chattanooga or, you know, uh, cities like Raleigh, North Carolina or places like that, I'm fine with that. So long as they're allowed to, you know, to, to prosper. Um, so let's talk about, you know, the, the arguments against and the, at this point, I would call them myths. There's two. One is they're all failures. All right. And if you look at the examples that the that the companies use, again, never in, in their own name, they either pay academic institutions, including the one I graduated from law school from. Uh, and or these you know, dark money groups to, to come up with this research uh, or to talk about the failures. And the failures are almost entirely decades old uh, at a time when there was not a demand for broadband and the price of equipment was very high. Were there failures at the beginning? Absolutely. Like was the Philadelphia public Wi-Fi experiment a disaster? Yes. But would, do we also want to talk about the disasters in the public sector and private sector? Excuse me. <laughs> Adelphia, uh, all the money, the, the public money that went to companies like CenturyLink and Frontier uh, to build in rural areas that never got built or got abandoned. So let's, you know, let's not talk about, you know, uh, failure in the public sector until we talk about failure in the private sector. But also the examples that are used all over again, including like Provo, Utah, which is now part of the, the utopia system. Yeah. Utopia had trouble getting off the ground, again, at a time where the economics of providing broadband were much different. Now the cost of equipment's gone down. The demand for broadband obviously is huge. And the pandemic has, you know, sent it through the roof. So that, that's the first one. They're all failures. And it's the same, like, three examples from 20 years ago. Again, will there be failures in the future? Of course there will be. But there are many, many, many more successes. The second argument, and I love this one because it's so thin, uh, it, it almost sometimes makes me laugh, is that the private sector shouldn't compete against taxpayer, you know, taxpayer dollars against local government, right? Is it we're the we're the private sector, uh, and you know, we shouldn't have to. It's it's an unfair advantage for government 
to uh, uh, you know to be involved in in, in broadband, right? We're, we're competing against uh, resources that we don't have. Well, please name me one big company, and the companies that tend to fight this that don't get a federal dollar, particularly now, billions of dollars in affordable connectivity program money, soon to be billions of dollars. In, and as far as I know, every single cable and telecom company, all the big names are all going to go for the uh, bead money, right? The uh, broadband equity access and deployment fund. So th this kind of notion, and of course they all use public rights of way, but let's just set that aside. So the, the notion that somehow, you know, community broadband is competing against this purely private enterprise is a joke. And, and the fact that they're, they're still making that today, uh, particularly in light of the billions of dollars that have come out of the ACP and the billions of dollars that came out of the ARPA, right, the uh, American Rescue Plan Act, and the billions of dollars yet to come, is like, I can't even believe you're still making that argument. <laughs> Yeah, true. Interesting. Uh, well, so speaking of all the funding that's said to come forth, the bead funding is on the way. Uh, you know, how would, first of all, do you think there's enough being dedicated properly to the build out of municipal broadband? Has that been a focus? Uh, and how can we expect for that to change as we move forward? Well, I think the Biden administration had it right at the beginning. They, they actually wanted... Um, uh, community broadband systems, public broadband systems to kind of have basically be favored, right? Have kind of a leg up in the process. And uh, not shockingly, that got, <laughs> didn't make it into the final legislation. Um, that being said, right now, I'm just fighting to make sure that public broadband entities at least have a fair shake. So one issue that AEPB was very involved in was around the, the requirement that NTIA had that every BEAD applicant have a 25% letter of credit from a, a from a Weiss rated B minus bank. And uh, I was a part of a large coalition, not just community broadband, but also minority, female owned, small owned, even some medium sized uh, broadband entities. We pushed back very hard on NTIA and we got relief. They gave us a bunch of alternatives that can be used instead of a letter of credit. So. Um, you know, have to make sure that at a bare minimum, uh, public broadband is on a level playing field uh, and not disadvantaged. I do worry uh, that some of the scoring systems that some of the states are putting out inevitably favor the incumbents. So one state, it's, it's, it's escaping me which one, says you get 40 points out of 100 if you can put if you can do a 40 percent match. Right, as opposed to the twenty-five percent match. Well, who's that going to favor? <laughs> right, or you know, you get more points the more people you serve. And as, as you know, it seems neutral, and it seems like it's a logical matter that makes sense. But if you're a community broadband network, you know, if you're a public broadband network and it's outside your community, right? That's not you're not going to want to do that, right? So. That really also, I think, favors the bigger players. Mm -hmm. And it, look, it's a tough balance, uh, both for NTIA and the states, because you want everybody to be you want everybody to be served, and you also want everybody you know you want to spend the money as efficiently as possible. States are already saying the forty two point five billion dollars isn't going to go far enough. So I, I get the difficulty of the balance, but I think the states have to be really, really careful, uh, you know, not to 
inordinately favor the incumbents in the interest of of speed and ease. And obviously, for some states, you know, you've got the state broadband officers are so different. Some are like fully stocked, like Maine has 21 people. Arizona has three uh, and moving to eight, I understand. So, you know, there's a lot of differences, but um, we want to make sure that at a bare minimum, the public broadband entities have a fair shake. The other thing I just want to also mention is like to the extent that a lot of community broadband systems are in our small cities and towns, they're not going to be eligible for BEAD anyway, right? Because those areas will be considered served. Uh, so like I said, it is a concern, particularly for my the most rural of my members. Um, and like I said, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that that they can have access to this funding. Interesting. Um, you know, when you talk about your members, how do states or cities become members? What I guess you can talk more about your membership and who's included there. Yeah. So we have we have voting members and non-voting members like right? the voting members are, you know, local uh, state government officials, uh, you know, network, oper- you know, uh, community network operators, um, you know, anybody who's you know affiliated with an actual with a community broadband network. But we also have non-voting members. We have lots of vendors who are obviously, obviously interested in, in, in getting in front of uh, these public broadband networks. Um, we have just friends of public broadband uh, who think it's a really good idea. So anyone who can become a member, my, my website's aapb.us and click on the, on the membership link at the top. Uh, we're looking for members of all kinds. And uh, anybody who believes that this is a important model I particularly think that once the, the the bead money is spent, and if there's still swaths of the country not served, and again, I think that's the expectation for an awful lot of folks. I wish it wasn't the case, but you know, the the infrastructure bill was two years ago, right? And that forty two point five billion dollar number looked like a great number. It sure looked great to me, but you know, obviously costs have soared, and so things things have changed. So this, I think, is a place post bead where community broadband can really pick up the slack for the places where, you know, there isn't a bunch of money sitting out there. It's interesting, you know, the, the, the cable companies were never interested in serving rural communities. Again, it's expensive and you don't get the great return on investment, but now that billions of dollars of government money is sitting out there, all of a sudden they're interested. And that's great. I don't want to say that that's a bad thing, but there's still going to be places that they're not willing to serve even even with money out there, that it's gonna that's gonna need somebody to pick up the ball, and I think community broadband can play that role. Right, and is there a, a I don't know, or rather, how do you, how do these cities go about purchasing or investing in the infrastructure? Is there a set method? Do they take bonds or like what? How do you? Yeah, there's various, there's various and sundry ways you can finance popular ways, municipal bonds, right? So that's an, another one of the myths is that, you know, oh, the taxpayer dollar is, you know, is going to pay for this failed enterprise, right? It, 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 is, it is rare and frankly, these days, never that you know it's it's taxpayer dollars it's almost entirely done by bonds sometimes there is private financing uh that's done you know private banks uh invest in in infrastructure as well but it doesn't involve you know taxpayer dollars Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. But my last question here is really just to hone in on this, where we are as a country. You know, we went through COVID, uh, the pandemic shutdowns. We saw firsthand the issues that students, workers, all of us were facing with poor broadband and, and actually the long-term effects it's had on uh, the, you know, the growth and success of our country. So, you know, what's your message then as we look to build out these municipal broadbands, change laws in states, how does, how does this fit into where we are as a country right now? How vital is it to our growth going forward? I think it's vital that we have a sector whose primary incentive is to connect everybody, no matter who you are or how much you make or, you know, uh, where you live with robust broadband, because it's essential. I, I know there's been a resistance as a regulatory matter to call broadband a utility, but it is. I know some people would rather give up their electricity before they gave up their broadband. So, you know, whatever way you want to classify broadband, and I have a specific idea on how you do that, it's still an essential service like water, like electricity, like gas in some places. So, and, and nobody denies it anymore. And the pandemic really, I mean, to the extent that there was still a debate, and there was one FCC commissioner up, up until the pandemic who was saying, oh, it's, it's, it's not a necessity. Nobody says that anymore. Right. If you want to, you know, if you live in a rural area, you want to talk to your doctor without driving 100 miles, you need robust broadband. If you're a farmer and you want to sell your goods across the country or overseas uh, or know what the weather is going to be so you can plant your crops, you need broadband. Right. If you're, you know, a person who, you know, for whatever reason cannot travel to your office, uh, you know, I've got to stay home with a sick kid. You need broadband. I mean, there's, you know, what broadband enables is, is everything you need to participate in our economy, our society, our education system. We didn't even talk about, right? Schools, you know, the kids who couldn't even connect. And this is where Chattanooga really did an amazing job, right? Making sure that every K through 12 kid had connectivity. So, you know, name me one activity, important activity in daily life that doesn't necessitate a broadband connection, and there are not many anymore. Uh, yeah, you can't ride a bike <laughs> broadband, but uh, everything else that you need to participate in society or economy, you need to. So, and that's where the, that's what the community wants to do. And again, it's a selling point, right? We're, we're we, particularly now that you can move around to work. You know, towns and cities—they're competing with each other for you know for uh, young talent for businesses to move uh, to their cities. And you can't, let, let me just give you an example of a state that, you know, that hasn't really done everything it could do to build robust broadband has relied on one company or remain nameless, that's Connecticut. And business GE moved out of Connecticut. And I'm not saying GE moved out of Connecticut because the broadband situation there is poor, but you have to think about it, right? And this is what companies do think about where not only can I get connectivity to my office, but where can my uh, my employees get connectivity to their home? So it's it, it's it's an essential. Uh, and I frankly think those 17 states that still have restrictions around community broadband are doing themselves a great disservice uh, because it just limits the options that people have for great connectivity. Right. Is there anything else you want to add in these uh, in the last minute or so that we didn't mention? 
Well, I again, I was just going to make a pitch for people to join AAPB. I think we've already had enormous success in Bountiful City on the letter of credit issue. Uh, we're unveiling the dark money, this domestic policy caucus that's going after Utopia. It's going after Traverse City Power and Light, which is a system in Traverse City, Michigan. Interestingly, uh, officials from both Utopia and Traverse City Power and Light sit on the board of AAPB. I don't think that's a coincidence. They're also going after a... Um, uh, a soon-to-be network in Falmouth, uh, Massachusetts, in Cape Cod, uh, called Falmouth.net. So, you know, one of my struggles have be- has been a little bit getting sort of existing networks to join because they feel like they're safe. Well, there's a 10-year-old system in Frankfort, Kentucky, who's being attacked by a state senator who wants to force them to sell to a private entity. Well, that doesn't just come up organically. Somebody is pushing him to do that. So nobody should feel safe uh, about their network just because they've been operating and the, and the community likes you. Uh, unfortunately, I, the, the incumbents are still out after you. And the more we grow this field, the harder it becomes. It becomes, it's already inevitability in my opinion, but it becomes even more of an inevitability. It becomes even harder for the incumbents to, to go after them because then it's a thing. It's a thing that's in the the fabric of the country. And at that point, just compete. Please just put stop putting your money towards lobbying and 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 ads. I think they're spending a million dollars in Utah against Utopia. Stop, you know, spend it to to uh, to improve your network. Put it, you know, put your money where your mouth is uh, and improve your your service. And people will buy your service rather than trying to knock down competition and knock down a, 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 a group of networks that want to serve places you don't.